The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans we're discussing before listening to the podcast. New episodes air Wednesdays at 10 p.m. on FX. Like some some TV shows and some projects you're working on, it's sort of like, oh, the camera's always got to be moving, or the camera's doing this, or the camera's doing that. That's all bullshit. The camera needs to move when it needs to move, and the camera needs to be still when it needs to be still. Hello and welcome to Slate's TV Club Insider Podcast for Season 4 of The Americans, where today we'll be discussing the penultimate episode of the season, A Roy Rogers in Franconia. I'm June Thomas, a writer and editor at Slate, and I'm the host of this podcast, which takes you behind the scenes of the show. Today, I've returned once again to gravity-defying Gowanus, Brooklyn, where the show is made. I'm joined by Joe Weisberg, the creator of the show. Hello, Joe. Hi, June. And his co-showrunner and co-executive producer, Joel Fields. Hi, Joel. Good morning. And this season's producing director, Chris Long. Hello, Chris. Hello, June. And where is that beautiful accent from, by the way, June? Manchester. Manchester. Where's yours from? From southwest London, um, with 20 years of Los Angeles. On. Uh-huh. Mine's Manchester with 30 years of America, 35. Well, we'll take a few years off. She, moved here. she moved here when she was when I was, right. when I was a baby. Um, we'll also be hearing from Costa Ronin, a.k.a. Oleg Burov, later in the show. We usually podcast from our writer's office. Today, we are in the post-production facilities. We are sitting in an editing room, and behind us is our avid... And up on the screen is episode 12, a Roy Rogers in Franconia. It would have been even cooler to actually do this in a Roy Rogers in Franconia. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you about the Roy Rogers, by the way. What, I, is this a chain? American, yeah, that's a low-rent American, American fast food go. chain. Probably closest, I would say, to a jack-in-the-box. Okay. Now, I have to ask you guys, I mean, there have been some goofy episode titles this season, but somehow this one is the one that... Obsesses me. I just, yeah, just Justin Weinberger. Justin Weinberger. Came our, up with that. Yeah. yeah. So our, how did, our how did, script coordinator. We just take pitches on on titles. Sometimes we know from the beginning what the title is going to be. Stingers, for example, last season. I think yeah. we, that was that was pretty clear. That was going to be one, Stingers. This one's a line out of the script. I right. Mean, yeah. Word yeah. for word out of the script. And Justin pulled it out of the yeah, script. Pulled it the out. Title. Yeah. And we yeah. were having trouble with. It. We could not come up with the title. And Justin said, "Of Roy Rogers and Franconia." We just went, "Yes." Yes. No, it's a great title. <laughs> the winner last season, of course, was Mel Robots, Electric what? Sheep. Yeah. yeah, Derek Simon. That Derek Simon. That one. Yeah. yeah, my assistant Derek. He had been actually holding that title for quite some time, right. waiting, waiting for, for the, the right, right episode. episode. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me jump ahead because you mentioned the male robot, which I know you guys are crazy about. Is this the end of the male robot? And do you did how did you guys feel? The I mean, the, the male robot delivers mail. That would be like saying, "Is this the end of the post office?" Just because there was some trouble doesn't mean you get rid of the male robot. I love the way Joe jumped in there. There's no way that male robot's going anywhere. That'll be <laughs> that'll be on his next series too. That's very funny. I'm going to do it at the FBI just so there can yeah, be right. a male robot. Right. The thing I'm curious to talk about with you is the performance stuff and how you manage to work with these actors and and take what they bring and elevate it even more. The dynamics of Philip and Elizabeth and Paige, and particularly Elizabeth and Paige in this episode, are so powerful. And it contains a single word, the final word of the episode, on which so yeah. much hinged. 
I just like to talk about how, how did you how did you approach that scene and that final moment because it's that's a it was a lot to yeah. put on a word. Do you trust me or not? I'm going to meet with a man we work with and he's going to hand something over to me that our country needs. What? Part of a weapon that our army will use to fight if we're ever attacked. Great. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. She's a trooper. And by the way, she did about another 20 greats as well. <laughs> and which, do you remember which number you used? Did you use one, 20, or somewhere in between? I don't really remember, to be absolutely honest. I know that. Did um, you know when you heard it? I know when I heard it, absolutely. And, and also, you just tell Kim, that's our script supervisor, yeah. you just say, circle that take, that's yeah, the one. right, exactly. And then, um, well, yes, that, and also, and then Sherry, also, we went through a couple with Sherry, and she, we looked at, we looked at, we, we, to make sure we had the right one, I looked at ones that, that I didn't feel were so right. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting because it, it's difficult when there's one when there's one line. Actually, it was, it was even difficult for uh, Noah to say a Roy Rogers in Franconia because it's the name of the when there's a <laughs> yeah you know Romeo Romeo we're for right, Romeo. Right, right. It's very difficult when it's when it's the the punchline of a scene not to just wait for the actor for the poor actor to wait for that entire ramp up. But all credit to Holly in that she really. I think during the read-through, she had a really good take on it. And I hoped at one point she hadn't peaked at the read-through, you know, you know because, because, she got, because there was such a good reaction. You know, it's, um, and I think it's often much harder to, to, to tweak a line or, you know, a word or, you know, that's got, that is the button of an episode or is the important line in the scene than the whole performance and build around it. But to be honest, those two both... Um, Carrie and Holly are such great actors and they have really great instinct. So, I mean, I think part of it is just being able to free them up for their instinct and then trying to help work, guide, encourage everything. My whole directing process is only ever about encouragement. It's never about someone has done something wrong. And I think a, a lot of it with the younger actors, not so much with the, you know, with, um, you know, with Carrie and Matthew, with the, with the actors that are older and much more experienced, but with the younger actors, is that they will see the directing process as a correction, as a, mm. you've done something wrong. And so therefore, to me, that's incredibly important that it comes out of nurture and love that nothing's ever done from from that way. So often, it, that's the way I approach it, and that's the way that um, that Holly and I think the younger actors respond to better. You know, Chris, you have an interesting process that, that really promotes a kind of collaboration. I remember you saying to us early on that you feel that there are two kinds of directors. There are directors who like to mystify the process and there are, character, there are directors who like to demystify the process. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that goes to our working relationship and your, yeah. your process with everybody? Well, it's a funny, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a funny, funny thing. Really. I, I believe the process is easy. You get a great script, you get great actors, and you have a, a somebody with a vision to shoot it, and it's going to be successful. It's a simple, it's a it's a simple process. So therefore, um, but I think there's there's other people out there that want that that prefer the auteurship of it all. 
So therefore, I think that there's a there's sort of a mist of uh, they they enjoy the mysticism of it. I always, with film students, whenever I give talks, lectures, everything else, try to demystify it because I think that's the human part of it. And I think those good directors, like I often go to those meet the nominee for the feature film directors, and I just really enjoy seeing people like Spielberg and.、Um, Uh, the Coen Brothers, and they just demystify it. They say, you know, they just like break it down and say, "I remember like、um, Spielberg talking about Private Ryan when they talked about the opening sequence, and he wasn't there when they when they planned the opening sequence.、Um, he was cutting Amistad, and、uh, you know, his DP and his stunt guys and Tom Hanks and so many people had input into that opening sequence that he said. Apparently, he said the the, the first time that he saw the rehearsal. And they tried to shoot it as much in real time as they could of them coming up the beach. The first time he saw the rehearsal, they'd set up like twelve, fourteen monitors for him, and all he could think was, "Shit, someone's going to get hurt." That's <laughs> that's that's what he's thinking. He didn't, you know. And so, and I say, I say that because I believe the truly great filmmakers want to de- demystify the process.、Um, you can cut this out or not, but on the same panel was Julian, Julian Schnabel, who directed the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, who apparently is. Owned everything. He owned the performances. He owned. He owned absolutely. Apparently, according to him, he owned everything in it. It was. It was amusing to watch of how much credit he wanted to take for absolutely the magnet on that fridge. In there. He, he, he wanted to take credit for Holly's hair sticking out like that. It was interesting to, to watch, but not so the case with what I consider to be the great filmmakers. What was the hardest? Part of this script for you. Well, I think in this episode, not just of that final word, but of the scene between Philip and Elizabeth and Paige prior to that, where Elizabeth comes home and she is simultaneously lying to them and demanding that they be honest with her and that they smell it, but can only call her on it so much. And the delicacy of each of those moments and each of those reactions. Is so fine. Yeah, it is. It what's is. what's going to cost you the time there? Is it doing a lot of takes until you get it right, or is it just figuring it out and getting the alchemy? What is going to? It's it's finding and, and, and finding it and figuring it out and finding exactly what works for the temperature of each character in that moment, and then moving it slightly to see if that works, and then moving it back if it doesn't, or like just getting some alternate performances. But do you do、like、you、that. figure it out through multiple takes, or do you figure it out through talking no, more to the actors? No, I try to figure it out through. I try. I, my process is I like to, I like to figure it out in the wider shots actually, so that when we come in for the close-ups, I'll do two, three, four takes, and hopefully we'll have the scene. And then it's about playing with it if we want to play with it further. But I like to find the scene. I don't like. I think it's not good for the actors to not have a direction for the scene. Otherwise, it makes. I think it it's it causes an insecurity is that they don't know what they're playing and they you don't know what they're supposed to be playing. So I think once you refine and hone the scene, once you found the scene, then there's getting to play within the scene. Now you've found it. That's different to trying to find it in in the moment. You're not trying to. By the time, as far as I'm concerned, by the time you're shooting someone's close up, you're not trying to find the scene. You've already found the bloody scene. It's like you're just trying to maybe refine that process and maybe go a bit further. Sometimes it's just a question of like, hey, we got that one. Let's just try one where we blah blah. We do this in that, or we try that in that scene. Okay, great, because there's the safety of we've already got it. We got it. Let's just try 
one for the hell of it. Try one for you. Try one for me. And you, you know, it's like it's uh, there's a freedom for that. And sometimes that freedom, you know, causes the actor causes the actors to, to calm down and just, just play play great stuff. Because once you get these three actors together and it's written and it's staged and everything else, it has to work. So, so every character is playing in their own space and yet together in the scene. So the subtext in the scene is coming out. Everything, everybody's on the same page with the scene. And, you know. Can um, you talk us through an example of doing that? Maybe, for example, in the opening scene. Let's listen to that. He was dead. Was he dead? I don't know. I. There were two guys. One of them had a knife and I had to. I. She like. She just... It's okay. Shh, 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 it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Don't we have to call the police? We have to call the police. We can't do that, honey. We can't draw any attention to ourselves. Did you have to do that? Yeah, I did. I feel sick. You know, I remember when we came up with the idea for the storyline, it's almost a funny story because ever since season one, every season more than once, we try to come up with something that'll be a sort of Elizabeth as hero storyline based on the storyline in the pilot where Philip beat the crap out of the pervert. And every season we want to do it again because we felt there was something impactful and interesting about that and powerful. And every season we don't do it because it feels kind of fake. And the show has gotten more realistic since the pilot. But every season we try. So we, Joel and I were walking uh, across the Brooklyn Bridge coming up with ideas. And once again we came up, well, let's, we, can't we do some sort of Elizabeth hero thing? And then we, yeah, every, everything we came up with felt kind of fake. But we, started, we said, well, what if there was something where she you know, beats somebody up in front of Paige, which fits in with all our other storylines because would, Paige would be sort of horrified, but would also sort of attract her to be to the cause because and the whole recruitment of Paige storyline because mom would seem sort of powerful in a way that would be appealing. So if we connected it to the church and they were like in a soup kitchen and then we started going, well, if they beat somebody up and then we just started escalating and escalating and escalating until it was Elizabeth killing somebody. Kill and yeah, then we're like, oh yeah, that would really fuck up Paige. And so <laughs> we just got, and, we just and, loved it. And, and it, that, was a, that was a great walk. And, <laughs> Uh, we there's a funny escalation to that story break because as we break story on these walks, sometimes we will dictate voice memos and email them to the assistants, the writer's assistants to to type up. So there's a series of six or eight voice memos when we get back to the office that start with, uh, well, what if they're at a soup kitchen and they're almost mugged and run away and then escalate to Elizabeth kills a guy in front of Paige and all the six memos in between. There's probably one where she kills like five people and then you bring it back <laughs> down. We brought it down. But uh, I'll tell you, Chris, what I love about watching that scene is something that I think was in our souls, but not quite in my head that you captured and that, and that Carrie captured, which is the look on Elizabeth's face yeah. watching Paige experience this and the look of a mother wondering, is my daughter ever going to look at yeah. me the same again? And there's such palpable fear 
Yep. You never see fear from Elizabeth Jennings. You didn't see fear right. really when she when she was on the street with those killing those guys. The fear, but the fear of losing her daughter, the fear that her daughter will never look at her again. That those glances towards Philip of help me emotionally here. What are we going to do? Are so real and simultaneously universal and specific. And Kerry looks so great in that scene oh too. It's this sort of like, God. she's got this, you know, her hair and it's, it's all not quite so perfect. And it, she, she looks amazing in that scene. What's interesting in that scene also is that, is Matthew. Now that's, that's, now that's because Matthew is in, in fact, you know, when you talk about directing the scene, somewhat, okay, Elizabeth's intention and Paige's intention is clearer than Matthew's. Matthew knows nothing. Think about what Matthew knows there. He knows nothing okay he thinks they were mugged he gets up and he's he's not so rather than just saying what the fuck happened tell me what happened it's like he's just playing catch up the entire time he doesn't know at the end of the scene what happened right i mean when we leave he knows you know when we pick it up with a glass of water he's been downloaded and everything but he doesn't know and he's he is comforting he's looking at his wife and he's comforting his daughter but he doesn't really know what's going on and he doesn't and doesn't ask well there's this ping pong aspect to it that's so fascinating and there's a moment at the end where elizabeth almost mutters something she's like excusing herself yes i couldn't help it right and he says okay i had to yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. and he goes it's okay for her to be yeah she's so vulnerable it's very vulnerable very Very vulnerable well there's another scene between philip and elizabeth slightly later in the episode where she says i keep i keep running it over in my head which we talked about a lot too, and we talked about the psychological phenomenon as people of people who go through trauma and how uh, there's a there are some researchers who say one of the reasons we run through things through in our heads after a trauma is we're looking for a different result, and there's something beautiful about that that moment where she says that to him and he he tells her there's nothing else she could have done that she got yeah. their daughter out of there safely. Yeah. Well, I think there's such a family in these scenes is one of the things that's so powerful about it. He's on he's on both their sides. Everybody's on everybody's side. Nobody's really, you know, they're not in conflict and they're not in negative conflict in the craziest kind of way, despite yeah. this horrible, horrible thing that's going on in this family. You actually feel all this love circulating around. At the same time, there is this feeling that Paige last season in our world, she thought she'd learned the thing that there is to learn about her parents. And now she's realizing there's so much she doesn't know that it's frightening. Apart from anything else, she essentially is reminded very forcefully that her parents are illegal aliens and they can't call the cops. I mean, there's so much that she's still learning all the time, even though in theory she got the information last season. But also if you're attacked, you're not going to get hurt because your mom's there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious about the scene with Oleg and Stan because it seems super important. So, Jays, this is maybe the most important piece of information. So, this is the important, most in important the scene of in, in the history of the <laughs> Americans. I mean, it, it, everything that this season has been about is almost changed here. So it's a very important um, editorial scene, I guess you would say. But... In, I haven't seen it yet, but in my mind, it was kind of small and narrow. In my mind, it was two guys sitting in a car, which isn't very visually interesting. Um, so I'm very curious about what it is. Well, before we take a look, yes. I'll just say something that 
is about the setup for this scene uh-huh. that that is that goes to the editorial process, which is there's a scene in which Oleg calls his mother, and that was a scene that was written for the prior episode and shot for the prior episode, and worked pretty darn well in the prior yeah. episode, but. As we talked about it and we were editing episode 11, we realized that that scene was so strong and potentially platformed this scene emotionally so well that it would work even more powerfully in this episode here. And so it migrated here, I think, really successfully and helped set this up because it created an emotional tone. Yeah, I I, I agree. I mean, it was his, you know, we call our mums when we're in the, you know, that's, that's that's what he did, the final, before he decided to... To, to speak to Stan, he called his mother because he didn't really know how it was going to go. Do you know anything about biological weapons? Not really. Your military makes it all test them. I, I don't know. Someplace, I don't know where. They send some of the work out somewhere else. We have someone there. At that place or, or, or one of those places. So that's two dudes in a car, kind of in the dark. Right. Was that frustrating or? No, 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 not at all, not at all. Um, it's funny because we talk about this a lot about our spine meets and everything. Yeah. And, and, you know, as, as Joe said, Joe says, um, a lot of it happened in cars, you know, and, and, and often it plays against your visual, you know, intuition as a director. I don't want to put them in a car, you know. They can, but this is, <clears throat> excuse me, this is exactly right for this scene. This is, you know, this is exactly what it should be. These, these two guys aren't going to meet anywhere else. Where else could you play this scene? I mean, it's just, it just feels, it feels so right that, that the fact they should be sitting there in that lonely parking lot, somewhere where you see the city in the background, but, you know, so it's a, a little offshoot of a subway station somewhere along the line. Um, so the staging feels exactly right for it. So I'm never frustrated by that. Plus, when you've got two good actors and good words like that, you just got, sometimes you just got to trust it. You just got to play it and trust it. And so if it doesn't need, there's no need to just put the camera down and, and encourage, nurture, cajole, do whatever it takes to try and get the performances you can, but don't try and, and do anything else with it. I mean, I'm, I'm a great proponent of, you know, like some some TV shows and some thing that some projects you're working on, it's sort of like, oh, the camera's always got to be moving, or the camera's doing this, or the camera's doing that. That's all bullshit. The camera needs to move when it needs to move, and the camera needs to be still when it needs to be still. And then the scene decides when. I mean, again, another cliche. There's many places to put the camera, but really only one. And that's the truth of it. It's the truth of it. It's like the inherent truth of the scene is told by putting the camera in the right place. So... Speaking of Oleg, before we say goodbye this week, we were lucky enough to check back in with Costa Ronin, a.k.a. Oleg Burov, to talk about this scene. Let's have a listen. Depending on how you look at things, Oleg's a traitor. He told Stan that the Soviet Union has an undercover agent in the biomedical research facility. Um, He's potentially cost his country you know, all kinds of potential gains and he's endangered agents. Uh, why do you think that Oleg told Stan that very 
precious information. Oleg is uh, is a very interesting character because he almost is ahead of his time. To Oleg, what is more important is not just which country you fight for, which side you stand on, but rather the balance of power in the world. And at the end of the day, it's all about, okay, if these two countries collide, there will be simply no winners. Everybody will be a loser. So, yes, you know, this country can be developing biological weapons, so this can be uh, developing a biological weapon program, and I can be on this side or that side. At the end of the day, what is right and what is wrong? Is there a bigger right or a bigger wrong? And what is a more ethical thing to do? What is the right thing to do? At the end of the day, yes, this is an extra level of the internal conflict that he's going through. This is an extra level of that, that, that fight, that decision-making process that he has to go through and, and to make that decision. But at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. So interestingly, you, you labeled him a traitor. I don't know if he is a traitor because it depends on where, where you're looking from. You know, if if uh, that officer who, uh, you know, what is it, 1983, when there was a, a, a reflection in the sky that, that the Petrov. system, would, yeah, the system was saying that they're basically nuclear missiles launched from the United States towards Russia, which was a reflection of the sun and the clouds. Mm-hmm. Ask yourself a question. Is that person a traitor for not pressing the button and not triggering co- uh, counterattack? That person probably saved the world. So if you think about it in those terms, is Oleg a traitor or did he save the world? Joe, it seems like Oleg is very different in that sense from like Philip and Elizabeth, right? Oh, Elizabeth would definitely definitely not agree with that. But I think Philip has been sort of floating around in these spaces since the beginning of the show. You know, and, and, and also there's a whole part of him that also doesn't even, I would say, is less living in that world even. Philip has been living in a in a world that's more about his family, but he's still sort of stuck in this job, whereas Oleg is very much in the space where his personal and political and, and family views are all about these issues. That's where he's living, and that's where he's able to make that decision. Costa, you said something very interesting about this character being ahead of his time. Because I think there is something generational about this character. And it goes to the heart of, of what the show is. The show's set in 1983 at a time when there was always this danger, real threat of thermonuclear annihilation. And people, because of that all around the world, were starting to think about a bigger, more global view. And after the First World War and the Second World War in particular, there was a sense that these wars were becoming unwinnable and there had to be a new order, but it was going to take a new way of thinking. And that was part of, I think that's part of what this character is grappling with. But for him, there is no historical context to it. This character is part of the creation of that history. Well, I want to add something to that too, which is I think there are a lot of people who think like Oleg. There are very few in the KGB or the CIA, very few. And of the very few, so he's way ahead of his time for being in the intelligence services. And of the very few, there may be none who would take that action. And in fact, you know, you, you look at the uh, the there's a there's a great scene coming up with him in Arcady that I'm that I'm not going to spoil. But there was some really interesting research we did that talked about guys in the KGB who 
in, in somewhat different circumstances did have an understanding of some of the moral implications of some of the things they were doing and how problematic they were. And a lot of their response to that was really to drink because there was no way to keep their jobs and keep doing some of the things they were doing except to sort of bury it in kind of alcoholism. So that's a better, I think Oleg's making a better choice than that, but it's a much more dangerous one. Right. He's, he's, he's also younger. You know, um, if we have a look at, at him this season compared to the previous couple of seasons, we, we can see how it's wearing him out. The, everything that's happened in the beginning of the season with Nina and his brother and his family uh, and his mom um, and where he's at now, he's a completely different, well, not completely, but he's quite a different person to when we met him with no socks on listening to Rod Stewart mm-hmm. uh, and he's feeling the weight. Yeah, He's feeling definitely feeling the weight and now he's coming up to that point where, yeah, absolutely, he'll pick up the glass and pick up a cigarette and he'll be, he'll be that guy, you know? And, you know, a few, five... Five, ten years down the track, we are looking at the fall of the Berlin Wall and the disintegration of Soviet Union, if you kind of keep going. For him as a character, imagine him then. He'll be that guy. Well, it raises such an interesting question. You, again, ask this question, is he a traitor? By doing this, is he, is he saving himself or destroying himself? And the idea that, those, that an action like this could contain the seeds of both of those mm-hmm. things is really great. That's it for this week. Thanks again to Costa Ronin and to Joel Fields, Joe Weisberg and Chris Long for joining us to talk about episode 412, A Roy Rogers in Franconia. Come back next week to hear us talk about the season finale, Persona Non Grata, where we'll be joined by Kerry Russell and Matthew Reese, a.k.a. Elizabeth and Philip Jennings. Thanks again for listening. I'm June Thomas. Our producer is Henry Malofsky. This show is part of the Panoply Network. Watch the finale, it's fucking brilliant.